Who can remember what you were doing in 2010? Not many people. Um, I, I've, I've enjoyed watching on Facebook people posting pictures of themselves in 2010 and, uh, and then this is what they look like now in 2019 and just kind of that retrospective of looking back and, and people talking about the decade that was and you know, even sometimes I think we can get wrapped up just even looking at the year that was in 2019 and so many things happened in your life and in my life and in our lives together as a church. And it's just incredible to look back and to think about it. And I take a look back at our family and what God did in 2019 and we just stand amazed and in awe. Uh, but man, I also praise the Lord that the God who worked in 2019 is the God who is working as we move forward into 2020. And, uh, and so maybe you're here this morning and your story is, man, I am like counting down the days to December 31st uh, so that we can get to midnight and ring in January 1st of 2020 because 2019 is a year that I would like to move on from. Uh, I suffered a lot of hurt. I suffered a lot of heartache. I suffered a lot of setbacks. I dealt with a lot of suffering, pain, grief, whatever it may be. And 2019 may have been that picture for you. But I just want to tell you that God was with you in 2019. God is going to be with you in 2020. And he has plans and purposes for your life and for my life and for our life together as a church. And uh, I, I cannot wait as we move forward, what God has for us as a people. Um, I, I, I guess I, I said all that. I should say, my name is Tim Dix. Um, I introduced myself to some of you here. Uh, it may be your first time. I'm the senior associate pastor here. On behalf of Pastor Mercer, uh, we just wanna welcome you in to our service today. I, I love this time every year, just this family service to be able to come together as, uh, as we close out the year. And so to be praying for Pastor and Pam as they're away with family and celebrating uh, Christmas and the new year. Uh, and as they come back ready for what God is gonna do in the days ahead. But if you've got your scripture with me, uh, if you would just turn with me to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six, because what I believe the more that I pray, the more that I've sought after the Lord, both for myself individually and just for the ministry that God has laid out before me and before my wife and before our family, the word that continually comes back into my mind is just this word, stand. And that we are to stand. I think what we have as we look at the culture around us today is that it seems that the followers of Christ, the believers in Christ, that there are moments and times where it could be that it's, they're trying to snuff out the things of Jesus, that they're trying to silence the church, that they're seeking to take those that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and maybe force a retreat or, or, or a, a backing away. What I believe that God is calling us to as a church, what I believe that God is calling us to as believers is that in 2020, that our message and that our declaration is one that we are to stand. We are to stand on the hope that is Jesus Christ. We are to stand in the love that comes from the Father above. That we are to stand on the truth of the power of the word of God. Not just on Sunday, but on every day. Not just on special holidays, but all throughout the year. For 365 days as we move from 2020 into 2021 and 2022. That each and every day of our lives, that God has called us as his people to be a light for him all across the planet. And that we are to stand in the name of Jesus. Paul brings that to us here as he closes out this book to the church in Ephesus. And so in Ephesians 1 through 3, and I can't go and preach through every chapter this morning, that's for another time and another place, but he tells us who we are in Christ. 
He spends an inordinate amount of time in those first three chapters saying this is who you are in Christ Jesus. This is what has taken place in your life. This is the significance of it, and this is what it means to you. He then begins to proceed in chapters four through six to tell us how we are to live in Christ. And in these chapters, he has been speaking through chapter four and verse one all the way through to chapter six and verse nine, speaking of kind of the ethical and the relational challenges that we have. But now he steps into verse 10 and he says, yes, there are ethical challenges. Yes, there are relational challenges, but there is a spiritual battle that exists. And he begins to lay this out to us. He's already mentioned in this book, the life in the spirit, but now he begins to proceed and to address it with even greater urgency and greater emphasis here for the reader. He shows us that there's more that's going on than meets the eye. That we can't simply say that our relational challenges in the church, that our behavioral challenges at home, or our ethical challenges in society are just results of everything except spiritual problems. That they involve, yes, physical and psychological challenges. But man, we are complex beings and that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. John Stott says, beneath the surface, that there is an unseen battle is raging. And in our culture today, everyone wants to talk about problems without talking about evil or without talking about faith or without talking about the spirit. It's amazing that in the midst of any problem that occurs, that the litany of ridicule that you'll see across Twitter or social media in general, that when, somebody, when a problem occurs in our country or in our world and somebody wants to offer up a prayer to those that are being affected, that then there, there are those that are met with ridicule because it would seem to propose that there is a spiritual cause to a problem is to be labeled a fanatic, to be labeled naive or silly or unenlightened or uninformed on what the real issues are. There may be some that give sentimental value to those of faith, but really nothing more because in their hearts, they just believe that such talk is inane. Can I just tell you, we are so advanced in our society today and in our culture. But when you look around, the streets are still being run with blood. Humans are being oppressed and treated like animals. Families are breaking down everywhere. There is real hurt. There are real problems and there are real issues that are around us. We are in a broken world that is influenced, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.4, by the God of this age. And the Bible is not just going to allow us to just pass off the answers and to say, well, you know, there, there's, you know, there's an answer in the field of sociology, or there's an answer in the field of biology, or there's an answer in the field of psychology, because they can't provide the absolute answer. You have to take into account sin. You have to take into account Satan when you try to assess the problems of this world. And Paul begins to move into this as a trustworthy and as an inspired apostle, he's not uninformed on the real problems that are facing us. He is informing us about the real unseen battle beneath these visible problems. So I want us to consider his words this morning as we look at verse 10 of chapter six in the book of Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. These are game-changing waters for us. I wanna encourage you, circle that word finally there as he begins it in verse 10. You know, we're kind of coming to the home stretch of this letter that he has written here in Ephesians, but it's not finally that this is almost over, but it is a finally that rather in light of what has already been said, here is the urgency that exists in these final words. In Ephesians 10, in Ephesians 6, excuse me, verses 10 through 17, Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus and he's exhorting us to stand firm by God's strength in God's armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. He gives three imperatives there. The first one he gives is in verse 10. It says to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says later on in verse 11, to put on the full armor of God. And he says multiple times in these verses to stand. These are the imperatives that dominate the text. And the rest of the verses then become explanatory around those imperatives. As you look again, the lead sentence there in verse 10, it says be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then the next verse shows just how is that strength really appropriated to us? Well, it's appropriated to us when we put on the full armor of God. Well, why then is it necessary for us to put on the full armor of God? It goes further and it says, so that you can stand against the tactics, the schemes of the devil. Again, the point is clearly here. It is to stand in God's strength with God's armor in the midst of spiritual warfare. The repetition of the word stand, it's in verse 11. In verse 13, if you have the English Standard Version, it says withstand or to stand your ground, take your stand. In verse 14, it goes on and it says stand firm. It's once again issued as an imperative and it is the chief admonition of this passage. And Paul is saying to us, he's just saying it over and over and over again. You need to stand, stand in the word, stand in Christ, stand in your armor that you have put on in the full armor of God. Stand against the schemes and the tactics of the devil over and over and over again. But there's a defensive element that is in here as we're to resist the devil's temptation. Paul's calling to mind James' word where it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so the idea there is that we are standing, that we are holding our ground, and that we are not giving an inch. It's saying, I will not yield to your temptation. I will not listen to your lies. I will not budge. I wonder for us, so far in this year for us, how many of us can say that we have stood, that we've had this defensive posture against the tactics and the schemes of the devil and that we have been able to stand our ground? I think so often, we're gonna look at this a little bit later on, that we, we find ourselves maybe being pushed back a little bit or taken aback a little bit because we don't take into full account the reality that the devil is coming towards us. And so that we have to be prepared in a defensive posture to be standing against the words and the lies that he would throw at us to seek to throw us off and to take us off balance in our positional place to stand in Christ Jesus. So there is this defensive posture, but also as you look throughout the text, there's an offensive element that is there as well. It says in verse 17 that we're to take up the sword of the spirit, that we are to speak the gospel in the face of opposition in verses 19 through 20, that this is if we're putting on the full armor of God, that yes, that we are on the offensive. Can I just tell you here today, if, if I asked Tommy to come up here on stage, and I, I'm not gonna ask him to do this, but if I did, and I told Tommy 
to run at me as fast as he possibly could to try to knock me off of my feet. I'm not just gonna stand there and just think that if I stand here like this, straight and tall, that I'm gonna be able to, to handle myself there. Now, if Tommy is running at me as fast as he possibly can, and I'm standing my ground, and then I'm holding this chair as he's running at me as fast as he possibly can, then I'm going to be able to take a stand. I'm also gonna knock him out, <laughs> which I don't know, maybe for the kids in here, you're like, no, call him up, let's see that. And so um, I'm not gonna do that. But no, like, like there's a combination that is taking place here. Yes, we are defensively standing and ready, but we also are armed in that defensive posture with the sword of the spirit and speaking the gospel into the face of the opposition. And even further in this, Paul is highlighting for us, he's writing this not just to one person, but to a group of people, to the church in Ephesus, and is highlighting that there's a corporate element in the text, that together, we must put on the armor of God. He writes this to the Philippians in Philippians 1 and verses 27 through 28. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you, he's talking to the church collective there, you stand firm in the one spirit, striving. How are you striving? Individually, no, you're striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. No, we're to do this together, folks. This is why it is important. This is why you are not meant to walk through the Christian life alone that God has given us his church, his body, his people to come together and for us to not just come and sit on the pew and look at the person next to us and wonder, man, I wonder what their name is. But no, for us to look at the person sitting beside us, behind us, in front of us, and to know that together we are standing together with the full armor of God put on and together we are going to advance the gospel into the darkness and bring light to the world around us. That's how we're to move as the church, folks. So let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you're trying to kind of weigh out in your mind and say, you know, in 2020, like I gave a lot to the church. I was really here a lot. I came on Sundays. I came on Wednesdays. I kind of did this stuff. And you are in your mind trying to think about, is that really worth it? That is a lie from the enemy who is coming into your midst and seeking to knock you off of the place in which you are standing. We are to stand together, hand in hand, arm in arm, all for the glory of God. This is what we're to be. If you're a history buff, you're familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae. And it's this picture I get. It's one of those kind of famous last stands. In 480 BC, outnumbered, the Greeks held back the mighty Persians for three days, holding them back. Like the 300 Spartans, it's like we too are taking our stand. We're fighting our enemies, not in our power, in God's power. We fight together clothed in the armor of God, which allows us to extinguish all the arrows that the enemy would throw our way. So we can apply this text to just be aware of the battle, to be equipped with God's armor and to be devoted to prayer. And that's how we stand against the enemy's attacks and how we advance the gospel in the midst of the opposition. So just in our short time that we have left this morning, I just wanna camp out in verses 10 through 13 because they just really speak to what the goal of all of this is all about. 
that we are to just stand in the midst of the schemes, in the midst of the storms, that God has a plan to suit us up and give us everything that we need to stand. So how do we stand? The first way is this, is that we stand in Christ. We stand in Christ. Verse 10, again, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And it says in verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. So as we looked there earlier, Paul begins by saying this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we have to be strengthened by the mighty power of the Lord because we don't want to crumble when the evil one, when the enemy comes to tempt us. So the, the challenge here and the imperative that Paul is putting out there is don't look in the wrong place for strength. Our strength this morning is not in our resources. It's not in our ability. It's not in how long we've been a Christian. It's not in how much we know about the Bible or in how long that we've been in ministry. Our strength, yours and mine and ours together is in our union with Jesus Christ and in his mighty power. In another passage that Paul alludes to being a soldier, he says this, he says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2.1. See, we're called to look in the right place to the right person, and that is Jesus. It's just simply us saying this morning, I'm weak, but I don't have to remain weak. I'll find my strength in the Lord. This is what David did in 1 Samuel 36. We read that David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord, his God. Hebrews eleven thirty two through 34 says, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. Church, we have to remember who we are and what is ours in Christ. The strength that is mentioned in verses 10 and 11 and in verse 13 implies to us and, and says to us that the devil can be resisted as we walk in the Lord's strength. So if you're here today and your story is, man, Tim, I just don't know how I can resist the devil. I don't know how I can resist the temptation. It's strong. Every day it is coming for me. Every day it is coming my way. Every day I'm dealing with it. I'm feeling the pressure of it, of being lured in by it and, and, and succumbing to that temptation and succumbing to that sin in my life. And I just don't know what to do. The question and the, to that, or the answer to that question is not for you to come up with this list of things but it is you coming to a place of surrender and understanding that I can't, but Jesus can. I can't, but Jesus can. And I'm gonna walk in his strength. And as I walk connected to his strength, then I do have strength to resist the evil and to resist the temptation that is coming my way. I just wanna reference you back to the reality of this. If turn just, just quickly over to Ephesians 2, just a few pages over in your scriptures there. In verse one of Ephesians 2, Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So that is everybody in this room, if you're not in Christ Jesus, 
If you have not come to that place of a relationship where you surrendered your life over to him, this is the reality that Paul writes. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. But there are those in the room this morning who have come to that place where you've declared that Jesus is Lord and you believed and confessed in him and you've called on him for salvation. So Paul writes this in verse four. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. So those who were dead in our transgressions and sins have now been made alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That, church, is what happened to you and to me in Christ. That's our story. And so positionally, we are sitting in the heavenly realms with Jesus, which means that we're not just lowly beggars, but rather we are high throne sitters with the King of Kings and with the Lord of Lords that God has seated us in the heavenly realms so that you and I and we can stand in the midst of the storms and the schemes. So I know we have children in here and, and, and I just wanted to kind of visualize this for our kids and kind of give this image to them so they can kind of carry this with them and understand like this is what it really means to be in Christ. Now I wanted to do this live, but then we, my wife talked me out of it. And so we've got a video for you, but I just wanna set this up before the guys play it. So for the kids in the room, if I took an egg and I put it on the ground and I dropped a big brick on the egg, for the kids in here, what do you think would happen? Just yell it out, kids. It, are you sure? So you believe that it would break. All right, well, so let's turn to the video and see what the evidence tells us. Oh. So they gave me two videos of this, and I love that one. I, can we play that one more time, guys? I don't want to throw, that, throw the guys off in the back. I just love the fact that the yoke just goes all over the screen. So you can come on up. So, um, so no, so like if I drop the brick on the egg, then the egg is going to break. It's going to shatter. The egg yolk is gonna get everywhere. This is why my wife talked me out of doing this live. We were afraid that, you know, we didn't want the people on the front row to have the egg get, uh, get all over them, like a, a Gallagher scene. Um, and so, so here I have for us, can we thank, Chris Vasquez helping us out here today. So here I have an egg. Now, if I put this egg in this safe and then I close and I lock it and then I take this brick and I drop it, we're gonna hope this works out for us, everybody, on this safe. What do you think has happened to the egg? Yes, they gave me the combination beforehand. Look at the egg. Nothing happened. Do you wanna know why? Is it because the egg was strong? Why was it, kids? It's because the safe was strong. See, the egg against the brick is gonna lose every time. But the egg 
in the safe is secure, not because the egg is strong, but because of what the egg is in is strong. And so it can withstand the power of the brick that is coming to land on it. And for you and for me, we can all come up here and we can drop this brick on this safe over and over and over again, unless you wanna get real cute and you just wanna like, you know, Michael Jordan dunk the brick on the, on the egg and have it shake around in there. But this applies to us this morning. Like this is the reality of who we are. We are not strong. But when we run to the safety and the security of Jesus and we place our lives in Christ, then what we have placed our lives in is strong and we will be able to stand and we will be able to make it. Christ is enough. And you and I can't stand in the storms and the schemes of life unless we are in Christ. So number two, we stand in Christ. But secondly, we stand in knowledge of our enemy. We stand in knowledge of our enemy. Look at verse 11. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. So the end of the finale of Ephesians introduces us to the reality of our true enemy. Now, and so as you're looking at this, like you have to understand like culture is seeking and really at a lot of times succeeding in availing the reality of our enemy and that Satan is our enemy. And understand this, that if you don't have a clue about who your enemy is, then you're gonna struggle to stand. Paul has already mentioned the devil in Ephesians 4 and verse 27. His Greek title, Diablos, means slanderer. He opposes, he accuses. Satan in Hebrew means adversary. Just consider some of the other titles that scripture gives us. In the book of Matthew, he's called the devil. In Revelation, also called the devil. In Ephesians, in Job, and Luke, Satan is the head of the demons and his minions. In Genesis 3, and 2 Corinthians 11, and Revelation 12 and 20, he is the serpent. In Matthew 10, 12, and 27, and in Luke 11, he's Beelzebul. In the book of John, in chapters 12 and 14 and 16, he's the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's the God of this age. In Matthew 13 and in 1 John 2, he's the evil one. In Revelation 12, he's the dragon. And so the various names display the fact that Satan, the devil, that he is wicked, that he is powerful, and that he is cunning. Just consider in these verses how Paul describes him. Paul tells us that the devil is evil. You say to yourself, why do you need the armor of God? Because we are facing an enemy who opposes God, and he is evil. Paul mentions the spiritual forces of evil in verse 12. He mentions the evil day in verse 13. So we have to have knowledge of the fact that the devil is evil. We also have to have knowledge of the fact that the devil is strategic. In verse 11, Paul tells us to be aware of the devil's schemes or the devil's tactics. That Satan, that he is wily, that he is subtle, that he is devious. 
In Ephesians 4, Paul pointed out some of the ways that Satan works already. He told us this, and that he's trying to gain a foothold by tempting us to do these things. And these are the things that Paul writes in, in chapter four that we are to put off. It is to speak falsehood in verse 25, to have uncontrolled anger in verse 26 of chapter four, to steal in verse 28, or in verse 29, to share unwholesome talk that these are all former ways of our lives, the ways that we once walked before God made us alive with Christ, that these are the things that we are to put off because Satan, he's seeking to make things look attractive, to make things look desirable, to distort the truth and to camouflage just what evil is. Paul also tells us here that the evil one, that Satan, the devil, that he wrestles in verse 12, Paul says we, we battle or we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, the word they're used to describe battle is not used elsewhere in the New Testament, but it was a commonly used word for the sport of wrestling in the first century. And so the context uh, of, the, of the match is between two soldiers, and it's a close battle. It's an intense battle. It's one that's filled kind of with manipulation, one with strategy. Can I just tell you this morning, the devil is not firing laser-guided missiles from a distance, but the devil is upon us. Satan is upon us, and Jesus told Peter in Luke 11, or excuse me, in Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So we are in a real intense battle. Some might wonder, well, what do you mean we don't wrestle with flesh and blood? Like, what is Paul saying about that? Wasn't Paul beaten with rods? Wasn't Paul in prison? Wasn't Paul left for dead, shipwrecked, endangered countless times, and, and a litany of other things? Like, what do you mean the battle isn't physical? Here's the thing we know from Paul that behind those battles is another battle. That there is one in the midst of our broken world who is engaging with us in battle. Those, the reference there to authorities or, or world powers, depending on your translation, some people like to reference that back to political entities. They think that Paul is talking about kind of the cultural or societal systems. And here's the thing, church, even though Satan can, surely can and does work through such systems, Paul, that's not what Paul's referring to here. Paul is speaking of the powers that work with the evil one, the powers that work with Satan and that are at work. So it, it made me think of just, you know, because we, once again, we live in a culture that, that highlights kind of villains or, or enemies that are out there. If you're an Avengers fan, Thanos was, was the enemy. Um, if you're a Batman fan, uh, the Joker, along with a host of others, but the Joker most prominently would be that enemy or that villain that Batman was fighting against. If you just saw the Star Wars movie and if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, the enemy there is, is the dark side. Um, and, and it is, you know, that battle that they're having with the dark side, trying to gain victory over that. You know, I'll throw this out there just for kids, but if you're, and for some adults, if you're a professional wrestling fan and you grew up like in Dusty Roads, like the, uh, the, the enemy was the four horsemen, um, you know? And so just a little, for something for everybody there uh, in the room this morning. Um, and so, but, but no, but, but hear me on this. 
So I, I, if it's Thanos, if it's the Joker, if it's the dark side, if it's the four horsemen, if it's whatever person that you want to put up there as somebody that you've seen in a movie or read in a book or even you know, when you watch cable news and all that kind of stuff and that we make people enemies and villains um, and, and all of these things that you want to put out there. Here's the thing. All of those are enemies who you have to enter into battle to defeat them. They are enemies who need to be defeated. We have to remember this morning, is that our enemy, the devil, he has been defeated. We are not moving into a battle to seek to defeat the devil. The devil has been defeated. And that's why we can stand, church. That's the confidence that we have because Jesus is the one that's already won the victory for us. It's what Paul writes about to the church in Ephesians when he leads it off in chapter one and verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So the name of Jesus, he says it here, that he is far above all rule and authority. Everybody, that president, king, queen, emperor, whatever you wanna call yourself, he's far above all rule and authority. He's far above all power, all dominion. He is far above every name that has ever been and ever will be invoked, not just presently, but for all time. This is the reality. It says in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul is not urging us to win the battle here, but to stand in the victory in Jesus' name here. That's what he's calling us to do. The authority, you can clap for that. The authority of the powers has been broken and their final defeat is coming soon. But just like a defeated army, man, Satan is not happy about it. He seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. When you study historical battles, you see this trend. When an army is defeated, they're not gonna easily surrender. They get more intense, they get more vicious, and so, and this is where the enemy is coming after us, but we're not called into this battle as if victory is in doubt. The decisive victory has been won and we fight with confidence because ultimately all things will be put under Christ's feet. That's where it's all moving to. In verse 13, Paul mentions the evil day. There's a lot of different interpretations of this phrase, but the more you study it, like, this is really a combination of the present evil age that we are in, that Paul references back in Ephesians 5 and verse 16, but also of those moments of temptation. And you have to consider, think back to our study through the book of Matthew, Matthew 4, 11, there's a phrase that's written there on the temptation of Jesus. It says that then the devil left him. And so this presupposes that the devil had come in force to tempt and, and to destroy but there's an understanding there that the devil was wanting to attack Jesus all the time. And he wants to attack us all the time. But he came with particular force at this time. And he will come with particular force at us 
at times. And this is what we have to be prepared for, to stand against the schemes in our own days in which the battle is particularly intense. And we do that by standing in Christ, but also in knowledge that, man, we're in a battle against a real enemy, but that battle has already been won. And we have victory as we stand in Christ. This is why, as the people of God, once again, this is why we gotta lock arms together, church. And we gotta suit up together. Because there's people that are sitting around you right now, they're in a battle. They are, they are living in the midst of a battle. And they're feeling it, and it is weighing on them. So we gotta come around as a congregation of people and immerse ourselves in the word of God and to seek God in fervent prayer and be aware of the battle that we are in as we stand against the evil one. Finally, this morning, we need to stand in understanding our responsibility. We stand in understanding our responsibility. Look at verse 13. It says, therefore, put on, circle those two words there, put on, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after everything, and after you've done everything, to stand. I've been going to the doctor um, here over the last few months, um, just full disclosure, I, I'm a diabetic, and, uh, and so just trying to kind of be better about taking care of myself, doing the things that I need to do. Uh, and, and so I, I went in and, you know, I went and got all the tests done and got everything taken care of and uh, went back and sat down with the doctor. So the doctor gave me um, some specific things, you know, beyond just the medicine to take and the amount of times to take your blood sugar and all of those different things. You know, he said to me, he said, he said, one of the things you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to cut out fried food, red meat, and, and bread. And so for those of you that have eaten with me and gone out to dinner with me, that's pretty much all I ever eat. And so, uh, like, that's my diet. And so, um, so I looked at him, I said, so you, so you mean, like, to not be happy anymore? And... Um, <laughs> And he said, well, no, you know, you have to do these things. And, uh, you know, and he also talked about exercising and, and you know, whether it's walking or running or, or doing something along those lines, something more than what I'm doing now, which is nothing. And, um, and so, you know, so I've got this like kind of plan of action uh, that I've got to kind of start to, to undertake in my life just to be healthier and, uh, and just in the midst of my life and, and for my kids and for my wife and and just for everything I feel like God wants me to do. So I, I have to do those things. A lot of you are gonna try to take up some exercise trends uh, over the next you know, month. Um, can I just tell you here, if you're gonna run or if you're gonna go to the gym or if you're gonna do different things like that, if you sign up for a gym membership, I just wanna like, break the news to you. If you don't go, it's not gonna change anything. You can be like, I signed up for a gym membership. Oh yeah? Well, how much weight have you lost? None. Well, why not? Because I haven't been. Like, you know, for it to work, you got to do it. You got to put it into practice. And so Paul comes in here and this form of the Greek imperative, he's told us in chapter four that we are to put off. Well, if he's telling us to put off something, then he is also saying to us that we need to put on something. And the thing that we are to put on is the full armor of God. And when he writes that in there, it's indicating that the believer is responsible for putting on God's full armor and to do that with all urgency. 
And the only way that one is gonna be able to stand is after they've made the necessary preparations of putting on the full armor of God. That's our responsibility in the work. Because when Jesus returns, we wanna be standing, wielding our sword when Jesus returns. Like there is power in Christ. There's power, (coughs) excuse me, in the Holy Spirit. And those things never fail. But it doesn't work if we don't put it on. And that's what God is calling us to. I love it. Paul makes no mention in these verses of equipment for one's backside. And and I love it. I find it like incredibly interesting. You read Pilgrim's Progress and it says that Christian, who was in Pilgrim's Progress, that he had no armor for his back because the best option was to stand his ground and to move forward. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.